This is Fade to Black. I'm your host, Jimmy Church. Tonight, Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell, the director. So good, they gave him four names. We're going to hit it all tonight. We're going to talk about these Pentagon videos. Uh, we're going to talk about Bob Lazar. Cannot wait for that, by the way. Skinwalker Ranch. The director, so good, they gave him four names. Jeremy, good evening. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be on. How are you doing? You know I'm never going to let that go, so you're no, stuck. it's great. It's great. <laughs> You remember, uh, 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 I had to do it uh, when I introduced you at Contact last year. And by the way, everybody, Jeremy will be at uh, Contact in the Desert again this year. He has to speak at Contact because he lives in Joshua Tree. So, you know, he would probably uh, protest and pick it outside of the entrance. Uh, and you can do that because you live there. It's one of the most interesting places in the world, uh, Joshua Tree. And I can't think of a better way a better place for a filmmaker and UFO uh, investigative journalist like yourself to live. It's amazing, man. I actually live uh, just outside of Joshua Tree and Pioneer Towns, even more remote. It's a really amazing location I was able to find, yeah. Is it every night, man? Do you go outside and some something something crazy is, is seen? You know, it, it's like a Spielberg movie. When you look up with zero light pollution in the wilderness, I mean, it takes 20 minutes to drive anywhere. Just to get off the dirt road takes a while where I live. And yeah, I'd have to say with a 360 panoramic of the sky, I'm one of those guys who never sees anything. But out there, it's hard not to. Yeah, I remember uh, this is probably two years ago. I mean, that's all we do is go out there and look at the sky. But this one night... Um, we went up to a house, uh, at the very top of one of the mountains, right? It just, you know, with one of those views, but we get up there and, uh, we go even further up above the pool and everything in the back. And I'm with a group of friends and Rita and stuff. And then I took the time to just rock my head back and look up and you, you're looking at a full color Milky Way. And it's right there, man. And, you know, and you just stop and it just takes your breath away. Living in Los Angeles, you know, we, we, you know, we're deprived of that. But you go out there and you see pictures of it all the time. But when you see it like that in that panchromatic resonance, you know, that, that full color thing going from, you know, horizon to horizon, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. It's something I didn't even know was so important to me until I moved out there. And you can see anything move in that sky. It is incredible. When that recent uh, rocket went off, I was doing dishes, which is a rare occasion. And mm -hmm. I, I just looked to my left and out the window, panoramic in perfect pitch black sky was that huge uh, rocket plume. It was just incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fully jealous. And I remember asking you one time, dude, why why Pioneer Town? You're like, well, come on, Jimmy. And I, I just had to check myself. It's like, of course, right? <laughs> of course. Oh, I I didn't want to move. I, I you know I was kicking and screaming. My wife is the genius here. You know, she told me we're going to move into the middle of nowhere, and I was like, what's the difference between the middle and the edge? But now I understand, and I'm trying to find that middle a little bit better now. Do you uh, do you go to the country kitchen often? You know what? I, I haven't gone there often. I'm kind of a resident of Pappy and Harriet's, you know, where Paul oh, yeah. McCartney played. Yeah. Great place. Yeah. Yeah. You've and, been, and La Copine. Yeah. yeah. You've been telling me to go out there every year with you. Wait, you know oh, what? We, we'll do it this year. I promise. All right. I promise. Um, I, I, I wanted your comment on this. Rita uh, asked me the other day. She goes, Jimmy, if you could describe Jeremy, how would you do it? I said, dude is steampunk. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> right? And that's what came out of my mind. And it was like one of those uh, innocent, juvenile, brain-first, think-about-it-later comments. But that's what came out. How do you... Well, first off, what do you think about that comment calling you steampunk? But but I think it's it's correct, at least the flavor, right? Um, but how how do you describe your approach to filmmaking? Well, you know, for me, it's it's based on real simple questions. We we all are curious people. If we have a, a you know a single bone in our body, there's curiosity there. And what I like to do is use the camera. As my passport, I mean, it became obvious to me very early on that you can have intimate conversations with people simply because you have a camera with you. And so that was really the revelation for me in trying to learn more about the UFO topic, about these types of technologies, is that having that camera really opened doors for me. I thought it would do the opposite. So my approach to filmmaking is very personal. It's about the human beings and their belief systems. Sometimes it includes UFOs and advanced technologies that are proposed by UFOs. Other times it, it doesn't. I spent a, a good year and a half in a tattoo shop watching a guy who, who I call a modern-day shaman, listening to people, their stories, their phenomenal stories uh, of healing and, and high strangeness. So the through line for all my work is I want the viewer to be able to see through my lens just like I'm seeing and to experience these stories and these people and these places in the same way that I'm experiencing them. So if I do my job right, then watching my films will be like a front row seat to what I experienced. There is a, there is a technique that you have with framing and, and lighting that has a modern uh, feel to it. So it, you know, it's pushing the boundaries there. But it also harkens back to some of the older days of filmmaking that that is ignored today. Um, so you get kind of both. There's, um, uh, you know, it's it's a hard thing to describe, but you have the elements of both. And I think you can appreciate what I'm trying to say here. You told me once that the first things you ever shot were the 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 film series you did on the Vegas Strip. Yeah, And that is some of your best work. So I have to step back and go, wait a minute. Did you even know what you were doing? And what, is this technique an accident that it's just because you're an artist? Yeah, I, I still don't know what I'm doing. Uh, that's the hilarious <laughs> part about it. I, right. I really don't. I'm right. kind of a technologically you know, impaired I, I do have people that I consult, like on a recent trip to go film with Bob. You know, do I have the right equipment? How do I do multiple layers of sound? They're, they're all kind of shaking their heads. Are you still using that old Canon 5D? I mean, I'm kind of laughed at by my friends who are technologically savvy, but somehow I get away with it. So you're not shooting in 4K? No, I, you know, the, the data required, I mean, I'm fully self-funded. It's, I'm a one man show. How much can one person juggle when they're trying to get to the meat of the information? I don't even use artificial lights. So everything you see is how, how it is, is natural. So I, I, I need to employ certain techniques, you know, to, to make that look good, but that's my method. Now let's uh, let's 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 go in feet first here. Um, yeah. We we do need to do this. Um, 
Oh, man. Okay, I want to be gentle here because also you and I have a lot of private conversations, too, as well. So I'll dance a little bit. There's no reason to to expose things. But the the videos that have been released by TTSA, um, which to the community seemed like and appeared like this was something new, that was being brought forward. But that is indeed not the case. These two specific videos have been around for quite a while, and you've been aware of it. And I'm going to let you finish that statement. Sure. I mean, you know, look, I I heard the intro to the show. You ask very important, big questions. And these questions do need to be answered. So let's talk specifically about the the Tic Tac case. I I have no relation to to Tom or his organization other than I'm rooting for him and I I you know hope that they achieve even half of what they're aiming to achieve. I think we should also give credit for what has been achieved. I mean, look, this is not a boring time for UFOs anymore. No. 2017 2018 has given us a lot to think about and look at. But more specifically, you're edging in on how did I know about the Nimitz UFO encounters? How did I, how was I aware of it? How did I report on that, uh, you know, seven months before the official releases? And, and I think that's what you're aiming at is this, this is not an old story. It, it, it is from, you know, I know it's not a, it's not a new story. Sorry, it's I'm sorry, it's not a new story it's right. from 2004, so that's that's current, but what you're saying is these releases weren't brand new, that this had been lurking in the shadows for some time, specifically the Tic Tac UFO case and footage that was seen. It goes back a, a long ways, and the reason the reason why myself and others in the community most of the community is is acting alarmed right now is because it feels like there is some misleading referencing that was going on here now it doesn't matter who the fault was whether it was the new york times or it's mass media or it's cnn the way they're conducting their interviews with elizondo or fravor none of that matters to the community it's the way that it was presented back uh, to the community, and then we had to figure that out on our own. And the UFO community is used to doing this over and over again. They will police themselves, and they step back and go, well, wait a minute. What's actually going on here? Right. So, yeah, so let's get you know kind of down to the facts and the history, for example, of the Tic Tac case. So I think it's no surprise to people, I've mentioned this before, that I had been working on that case quietly and silently for about two years prior to the kind of official announcement. That event series was from the 10th through the 14th of November in 2004. There was a temporary leak that was found through Reddit in 2007 of a version of the footage Mm -hmm. that is now seen publicly. Uh, What people don't know, I I might have stated it before, is that there there was, in fact, an intelligence study done on the 2004 events in 2007 as well. So it didn't fly under the radar that it was leaked, quote-unquote, in 2007 through Reddit. Now, we have the 2015 report 
by a fighter pilot named Paco on Fighter Sweep that has become very popular and famous. It actually dropped my jaw when I saw that that was the tip of the spear and the thrust for the To the Stars announcement was this series of events. I mean, the, the primaries of that case did not even know. When I reached out to let them know that this was all being said, and, and in fact, that the specific Google search terms were then said on stage to find this obscure aviation article that named the pilot, it, it was an alarming moment because it was not something that was you know, notified to everybody who were primaries in this account. So I think it took some people by surprise who were even involved in this account. Uh, you're referring to uh, TTSA and, and the other principals. No, I, th- I think it came to a surprise to the individuals who engaged the 2004 uh, Tic Tacs. Oh, I, you're talking about Fravor and uh, uh, what's his name, the, uh, the wingman. Yeah, so whoever I'm talking about, there were primaries in the series of events, right? Right, right. I got they, you. What I'm saying is they were not aware prior that that was going to be done. And so, so that was interesting, you know, seeing that for myself and then putting that together was, was really fascinating. Did TTSA, uh, now, TTSA didn't have the videos at the time. They should have. I mean, they were out there in the public domain. But they didn't have them at the time of their uh, uh, live press conference. Don't need to dwell on that. Well, the the videos were not available uh, to the general public. Uh, Think about the the gimbal, what's known as the gimbal video, which we really need to clarify. Right. But, you know, that one was not available publicly by any means anywhere. Did a... Did they reach out to you, though? Did TTSA at any point reach out to you? I, I was of I was of no help to TTSA in what they chose to do. Okay. However, I did because I had probably, I definitely the largest network of people regarding this case, all the way from you know fighter pilots who directly engaged the objects to radar specialists to personnel employees. I had developed that for a long time. So the ability for me to talk with them and say, you know, hey, you know, some of these people, this is something that I I think you should get out ahead of and in front of and contribute to this conversation. Some of them can and could do that. Others cannot. If you're current and military employed, right, then that is not something you can do. So some of the silence that people are experiencing from some of the principles it's not by choice, it's by occupation, if that makes sense. Are you in possession of additional uh, gun camera footage? I know that there are many versions of footage that were taken that day from radar to a, a really amazing kind of high-tech optical system called Chibble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it stands for, but it's a tactical optical. So th- there's a lot of footage from that series of events But also remember, things are very compartmentalized. So if one pilot films the object and brings that footage back to the ship, uh, they might not be aware of other pieces of footage. But because I have been talking with a variety of people involved around these encounters, I do happen to know that there are multiple streams of footage of these objects, one of which is is quite astounding. It's kind of the unsaid, the unspoken thing about this event, which which I will talk to you about tonight. I want to clarify. It's something people might not have been pick, you know, picking up on. 
with this story. Yeah, continue. I'll, I'll let you speak freely because, again, um, I'll let you reveal anything that you and I have talked about. I won't do it. <laughs> I'm going to sure. leave that up to you. But but uh, let's speak about this uh, specific piece of footage. Right. So, you know, as we know, this is public information. Commander Fravor was one of the two pilots within a craft going towards this object. And what he describes, and this is an individual who is within 100 feet, uh, approximately, uh, of this object that's commonly now known as the Tic Tac. And you'll see that I've reported on a few details about this, there, you know, about there being a seam on the object about it having zero traditional propulsion through any of the different types of optics that were used. So, for example, you have FLIR as a pilot you can look through. You have many different kind of layers of optics that can be used. The, the whole video of that event, of that particular type of video, has not been released. The reason being is that uh, some of the ways the radar hooks onto an object that is still considered national security. So the parts of it that were released publicly, I think it's great to have anything released. Uh, additionally, something that was uh, that I have said before is visually that this object had a couple appendages. And that's I find that very interesting. It made people believe that the Tic Tacs were in fact, for lack of a better term, docking with something just under the water. And now if you really listen to the reports, you can kind of summarize by the words being used that these objects coming in from above 80,000 feet, which is the kind of scope of the radar system that, that we're talking about here, and dropping down to anywhere between zero and 50 feet above the water, that it was coming to a specific place. And that place under the water, there was a 747-sized circle of churning water as if there was something underneath the water, a USO, unidentified submerged object, which, which indeed there was. And so these objects would come down into the, for lack of a better term, dock with that thing. And this was observed by, by pilots, by a multitude of pilots, actually. On the 14th, it was by two separate sets of two separate jets, which means eight people. So you have eight eyewitnesses, you have radar controllers, many types of radar systems, and then you have this really unique chibble, I believe it's called, system that is this you know, optic system where you can beam a, a feed from almost any type of vehicle directly into a command center. So that footage that I have heard about is really interesting because it doesn't just show the Tic Tac. Now that information, that footage is not public. Have it you seen it? Out. Have you seen it? I, I, first of all, Jimmy, if I had seen it, I, I wouldn't say that I had seen it, but I'm going to say no. Okay, all right. <laughs> I wish okay. I had seen that footage, but I mean, let's be honest. So that Why, footage... But yeah. Jeremy, uh, uh, we're going to head to a break here. The important question is, why not, if you are in possession of it or have access to it, why not release it right now? Well, I don't have possession. That would be classified. Now, the other thing is, is the footage itself, if I was aware of it or had possession of it or had seen it prior, like a lot of people, there is no way to know its classification. By doing something as irresponsible as just putting it out through unconventional means, 
it, it, it causes people with real lives, real families, problems. Because where did you get that footage? And I believe that was part of the reason why there was the 2007 intelligence study. When someone like David Fravor comes back with his craft, they take the footage and they put it in a secure vault. It is in that vault. It is deemed classified by being in that vault, as I understand it. Somebody got that footage, digitized it, and put it into the public realm for a moment in 2007. That is a huge breach of, of, of security. And that was not David Fravor who did that. He believes that whoever did that should be taken to jail. So there is a story there that is yet to be told about how that footage got out in the first place. Now, the 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 two videos, well, one specifically has nothing to do with Fravor at all. Right. Okay, so that's that has nothing to do with Fravor. The the Tic Tac video may be associated with Fravor, but that that specific footage that is the Tic Tac video, Fravor wasn't on site. That is not from Fravor's plane or from his wingman's. Am I correct? I, I, he has never publicly clarified that. Right. See, I have I have issues. I, the reason why I have issues with that is Fravor is, you know, he's on screen. He's being interviewed live on, on different news uh, outlets uh, d- telling his story, which is a fantastic story, and it needs to be told. It's, a, it's an experience and an event that needs to be told. But at the same time, the networks are playing these other two videos alongside with his, uh, you know, his interview, and the association is made, and it's never been clarified. Can you imagine the frustration that he must have when he's doing an interview on camera and he doesn't know what Fox News is showing over his words? That's right. That's right. There is frustration, but also he sees it the next day. And so right, why would and, he... I, and I can tell you, though, look, whatever you know, footage we're seeing, there, there may be really good reasons why if somebody else took footage or whoever took the footage in the first place, you know, maybe they are still employed by the by the military. Maybe they're not in a position to be able to publicly speak about it. So we can assume all the things we want. But if it's not been publicly said, then it's not something that, you know, I think is uh pertinent to get into because i think some people's uh, careers are at risk if you know you step over those bounds yeah i agree with that and 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 we need to uh, be careful here but the other part is who is responsible for misleading the public this way is it purely on the shoulders of the networks and mainstream media or why isn't there been a clarification from ttsa about these different interviews saying hey this is the, these are not the same thing, you know, but right. wouldn't it be, it wouldn't it have been nice if that was extremely clarified at the beginning. And in fact, I was, and you can look back at public record. The first person to say that the other one was from 2015, I put a date on it. Right. Um, and th- that other series uh, of events, you know, that are getting lumped in. We're calling it the gimbal video. Yeah, that was from the East Coast in 2015 compared to 2004, the West Coast. And that is a huge problem. I mean, I'm sitting here watching it thinking, oh, man, the news has really messed up. But at the same time, they didn't have all the information, not even for the New York Times article or the Politico article. So it's frustrating. But at least, you know, we have something we can go off. And these are the types of questions that need to be asked right now. Yeah, it, it, it has to be. It has to be that way. We can do this. 
We can meet at a Denny's at about 2 in the morning, halfway between here and Palm Springs, and we'll do a clandestine USB drive drop. You just get me the videos. I'll release them, and, and I don't know where I got them. Nobody will know. I, I don't have any videos that you know need to be released to the public. I think there's a, a really good movement right now where information and videos are getting out. There are more. Those videos will come out. No, they're not available in the public domain at this time. Make of that what you will. But I think there is a process involved right now that I think I, you know, I'm, I feel very positive about it. Imagine for two years, I'm looking at this case. I'm, I'm looking at it through, you know, very closely. Yet I don't have the ability to tell anybody, look, if we put these out, your story is going to be shielded, that there is a process in place and you're going to be just fine. That was my dilemma. I am not part of the government. I've never taken a security oath or, or had clearance in any way. So I am in no position to do that kind of thing. However, the, 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 the process that is currently underway, I think it is very possible that we're going to be getting more and more information from it in a legitimate form. And I think that that is really good. Yeah, I want to be clear to everybody, too, as well, when it comes to uh, to the stars and, and what they've done, pulling the the mass media in like they did to which has been just, you know, so negative about the UFO uh, phenomenon and, and questions that for it to go as far and wide and for as long as it did, I've got to commend them for that. Now, I've, they have the money and the resources uh, to pull that off. And and they did. And they brought the awareness up to a level that we haven't seen maybe ever. So I, I commend them for that. The ball drops on every side is what has caused us to just back up and go, oh, man. Ah, you know, because there was so much relief out there with the UFO community and the question of disclosure. And finally, uh, you know, we got somewhere and then it's just one black mark after another. And we've got to figure out a way to get this all back. And my question to you is, do you think that the mainstream media is going to respond in the same dramatic fashion the next time around? Well, it depends what's released, but I think that, that they will have to. Yeah, I also do think, you know, some huge things were achieved. We know things now that we didn't know then. We, of course, we're putting them through the microscope right now. But, you know, we have now. It, it was funny, man. I looked online and started doing a little cross analysis of who these Pentagon spokespeople are, how many of them there are, and what precisely they said directly related to AATIP. And I found the funniest thing. So there were three Pentagon spokespeople who have directly responded about AATIP. And I took all of their quotes and I put them on a board. And what's funny is there's only two exact statements by all three Pentagon spokespersons. There was Dana White, Thomas Crossan, and Laura Ochoa. Right. And they, they, they made only two statements out of the three of them. The Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program ended in 2012 timeframe. That's the first thing they said. The other thing they said was it was determined that there were other high priority issues that merited funding and it was in the best interest of the DOD to make a change. I mean, three people saying the exact same two statements. I, I happen to know that both of those statements are false. And I, I find that it, 
incredibly interesting. Why? Who do you think uh, changed the name? You've you've heard me talk about this a lot. Yeah. From aviation to aerospace. Again, really misleading. Aerospace sounds UFO-ish. Sounds cool. It's aerospace, right? Right. right. Um, the correct name was aviation. Somebody changed it somewhere. Who do well, you think did you're, it? You're, you're saying it's the correct name. I think that we're still open to debate about that. Let, let's go through the history of the names and exactly how that was put out to the public. Again, you're so not the, speaking on behalf of TTSA. Let's oh, make that no, clear. no, no, no. Yeah, I, I have no association with TTS other than I, I really am rooting for, for them in the process they're doing. I think it's fabulous what has come out. But let's go over that. Let's go over the specifics of that one lingering A in AATIP, meaning aerospace or aviation. Because, I mean, look, I had that thought, too, is, you know, what? how, how does that change our understanding when you say aerospace or aviation? So the first mention of this ever in the history of, of you know, public mention was in the New York Times article, just beat Politico by the smallest punch. Mm-hmm. And that was written by three people, Right. So in that, it's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. That was the first mention. Immediately, or at the same time, you then have Politico, and they come out through Brian Bender saying Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program. So already, we have this question of the A. What is it? What is it? Which one is it? Right? Then you have these three Pentagon spokespersons that came out. All those, there's a fourth I want to talk about who who. who was just very verbal for for the Wired uh, article, right? That just came out. Right, very verbal. I mean, said more statements than all of them combined yep. and totally oh, out, yeah. outside of the scope of what was the written, this is what you're supposed to say, which is what these press people do. That's why you have exact quotes from these three other Pentagon spokespersons that are identical, right? Now we're talking about Audricia Harris. Yeah, we'll get to her in a minute. So... So first off, right, just about the the A in the AATIP. So to to the best of my knowledge, which, you know, goes way, way beyond these public statements, it is my understanding that the acronym was for aerospace, that this was indeed a program. Uh, remember, they say Lou Elizondo, he was in charge of this, uh, you know, he was tasked with this for 10 years, but we're being told it was only... 2007 to 2012. That's only five years. Well, there's a story in that. And that story goes back to Skinwalker Ranch. I will be revealing that in my film. That that story will be told, which is what exactly that $22 million was for. Was AATIP in existence prior to 2007? Indeed, it was. And then, you know, the exact name most people would, you know, on the inside of that would say, well, it's really not that important. But I know people do think it's important because if you're doing FOIA requests or anything like that, it's good to be specific. So I'd like to say that the jury is still out on what the official acronym was. I'm not going to say, you know, personally, my understanding is that it was aerospace, but the conflict comes in two articles on the same day, New York Times and Politico. They called it something different, and that's where the problem came in from the get-go. Yeah, and for the UFO community, you know, if it would have been aviation, they would have said, well, okay, it's aviation. It has something to do, you, you know what I mean? But you insert aerospace, that gets everybody excited, yours truly included. I do understand that, but no matter what the acronym was, 
it ha- it was tasked with a very specific task, and that was confirmed in the political article by Dana White, the existence of the program that was run by Elizondo. And so that program was in existence prior to this, this 22 million. It is currently still uh, existing. In fact, as we know, every branch of our military and every intelligence agency has programs. We're seeing a drop in the bucket. 22 million, my joke, because it's true, is the military spends more money on Viagra than it does on this program. That's it, right. It's hilarious. There are studies on that. You can look up my my buddy who's a helicopter pilot told me about it. And it's hilarious. So let's get back to the point. The point being People are kind of up in arms like, well, wait a second. You made it sexier by saying aerospace instead of aviation. And and the jury is still out on the exact acronym. It is my understanding that it was aerospace and, and has been. Do you think that um, uh, Elizondo will will come forward with, you know, some direct documentation on his position there. There must be, this is the thing, did he work for the DOD or did he work for ATIP? And, uh, I mean, directly, there must be simple things like emails, letterheads, uh, inter-Pentagon inter uh, paperwork that is not classified, that just simply says what his job is and what he does. And I don't think that's anything anything that would be classified and well he's admitted- it doesn't quite work like that if you remember how you know his own boss wasn't even completely aware of what it what the work was that he he was doing so to you know to say well can i get a pay stub with your title on it it's it, it's from what i understand it's not quite that simple but i do believe that proof was given to the writers of the new york times so that they can confirm his position and uh, you know time will tell if if more comes out on that but I, I believe their uh, questions were satisfied by the documentation paperwork that were showed to them. Now, is that going to be made public? Uh, how could I know that? Yeah. Well, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm suggesting, do you think that he will come forward with it? I mean, these questions are out there now. Right. right. So, it, you know, we just need clarification. Let's just just move forward. There are so many different and and we are so used to it. You know, you and I and others in the community so used to uh, uh, these these dead ends, right, where nothing gets resolved. Well, in this case, we have the person, we have the job. There isn't a dead end here. There's a question. And there's so many little black clouds. Okay, well, let's clarify each one of these, and then we can relax and move forward and, and get yeah. back to the business yeah. at hand. Yeah, it's a, it's, it is a shame that there is, you know, some confusion about, for example, something close to my heart, which is the Tic Tac case, because, you know, there you have eight pilots, one who's come forward directly and publicly. You have radar control operators, you have multiple radar, you know, systems, and lots of different types of footage. And that, you know, it's, it's a shame, like if you're gonna, if you're gonna come out, right, then, then come, come fully out with it. But at the same time, we know more now than we did before, thanks to these announcements. Guaranteed, we have an acknowledged program, whatever the A stands for, to study threat identification of advanced craft. Now, we were told that ended in 1969 with Project Blue Book. This is an official confirmation of a program that does that. 
thank you. I'll take that. That's interesting. It's something to go off of. So we have learned a number of very specific things since then that I think are, are very good for the people that are interested. Two things that are completely bypassed by the general readers of these articles, and I actually don't know how these things made it into the article because they – I mean it's a whole nother layer, uh, the, the fact they mentioned these. But as you remember – they specifically talked about alloys and about skiffs that were built at Bigelow Aerospace to hold materials associated with what we call UFOs or really AAVs. That's another thing I want to throw down there is that internally within the Department of Defense and, and specifically I'll say AATIP was uh, um, a DIA operation. It was a DIA operation at least for a long time, that's a defense intelligence uh, intelligence operation, which is kind of the intelligence branch of you know the Department of Defense. So it's fascinating to me that you know we now know and we're told that there are physical materials at one time being housed at Bigelow Aerospace in these skiffs that they built for holding the these these alloys. I think if this information does come out in the way that everybody's hoping it does, that I think there's already a gross misunderstanding of what they meant by that in the New York Times article. It's not like they found new elements that didn't exist anywhere else. Right. I, I think the key there is the atomic layering. I think that that's going to become the really interesting thing, which is something I've looked a lot at when I'm dealing with the nanotechnology and, and when I'm filling on that matter. Perfect atomic layering. Imagine that, how that can be done beyond something that we right now, as humans, what we can do. So if that all starts bursting at the seams and coming out, remember they said it in the New York Times, is that there are alloys and that the structure of these alloys reveals certain principles. Now, I don't know anything about that. I'm more into to Bob Lazar and the element 115 theory. Right. But, uh, but I think everybody should pay attention to that. The other thing people should pay attention to that I don't think people picked up on are the medical studies, the medical studies that were mentioned for UAP or whatever you want to call it these days, but encounters by, by government officials. So it, prolonged exposure to unidentified aerial phenomena or UFOs or AAVs, right? And th there were medical studies that have been underway. Now, we don't know more about that. There's nothing about that publicly, but keep that on your radar. I got an uh, email yesterday that said that, uh, well, pretty specifically, that that TTSA and Elizondo are going to come forward and back off of the alien aspect of the alloys, that there is a terrestrial explanation. Um, have you heard anything about that? No, that would be that would be fascinating, you know, because that is kind of the smoking gun. You right, know, that is right. what everybody wants to know. Did you, know, you see? Did you see? I'm I'm sorry if I cut you off. Uh, I apologize for that, Jeremy. Did you see or hear anything about Elizondo's taped uh, presentation at the Congress? Oh, you know, I I, I didn't. I, I heard that he was going to answer questions by doing a taped uh, interview. Uh, you know, look, I'm really stoked that uh, George Knapp was able to nail down on camera Harry Reid, who spearheaded this entire $22 million. 
and Elizondo because there's not enough footage of them out there really talking. You get some radio and that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. to see him talk about it, I think is powerful. I didn't hear how that went. I hope it went really well. And I think it's cool as hell that Lou is doing that, uh, you know, for the public. Yeah. I haven't heard anything either. It's, it's, it's pretty strange. So I don't know, uh, I guess the audience, uh, uh, is still out of the Congress and hasn't heard, you know, fade to black or anything. And, and I'm bummed I missed it, man. That yeah. would have been neat to see. Yeah, yeah. and I would like to see it. Hopefully, uh, open minds and uh, the Congress will, uh, you know, have that out there for us uh, to check out. I'm very curious uh, as to the selection of the questions because I'm sure there was a buttload uh, yeah, that was yeah. uh, that was submitted and and what was picked and and how it was answered. But I haven't seen it. Let's uh, let's jump over to Bob Lazar. Um, the my 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 take on Bob is this, and this is where I just hold him up on the the highest of of regard. Um, just like anything else in ufology, he he got picked apart. He got picked apart, and everybody went after him to discredit him. But here we are in 2018. And he's he's the one guy, right, that we just all admire the most. He survived it. Well, he had to leave town because it got a little bit rough, and I understand that. But um, we all, I, I just admire him so much. What is he like to you um, when you sit down and, and speak with him personally? Yeah, I guess it's, you know, one of the most interesting aspects of doing this documentary on Bob is first of all that he said okay. I mean, I've I've known him for years, and you, you don't push somebody if you can see that something causes them distress. And reopening this can of worms for him uh, does, I, I imagine, to a degree, create distress. He said what he wanted you to know, and he told his story, and then wants you to use your brain and decide for yourself. If you don't think he's telling the truth, pass it on is what he says, because the UFO field has done nothing good for him. And I can attest to that. It's something you don't typically see when watching a YouTube video. But when you get closer to the inner circle, the small inner circle that Bob lets into his life, you can clearly see how what he did in one sense saved his ass, but in another sense created you know, distress in his life. What I find very interesting, because look, I'm not, and I want to be real clear about this before I put out the movie, I am not, as Stan Friedman would like you to believe, a pro-Lazar person. I am somebody looking at the evidence, curious, like anybody else, asking the hard questions and trying to get the answers to better understand it for myself. And so this is what I believe my film will allow you to see, is to go through that experience on your own. Because I'm not going to be telling anybody what to believe. I'm going to be providing them with as much evidence and facts and new footage that is humanly possible. Remember, in the public domain, you probably have a total of three hours of footage of Bob Lazar, period, Mm -hmm. describing his story. That's not enough to judge a man and judge his character. So to provide more footage is one aspect. Something very interesting The closer you get to Bob's inner circle, his family, people who have never spoken publicly about the experiences they had surrounding this, I've been able to interview. You name them, I've been able to interview them. So when you get closer to that inner circle, his wife, 
his mom, his best friend back in 1989, the more you start to realize or have to consider that Bob is telling you the damn truth. And he's telling you the truth just as it happened, as specifically as possible. So I found that interesting because usually when you go into someone's story and if they've created a series of waves of lies, the closer you get, the less believable it becomes. And in fact, I've experienced the opposite. Wow. Well, is is he aware of of his impact on ufology, you know, now which goes back, you know, it's kind of crazy to to think about this, but almost 30 years now. Yeah. Um is he is he aware? You know, he he, he is aware because people do stop him. <clears throat> you know, and they they speak with him and they ask him questions and he's really gracious about that. He doesn't go and try to seek publicity in any way. He shields himself from that. And people that love him and care about him also, you know, are in the business of shielding him from that uh, because it's something that is uh, uncomfortable. I think, you know, praise or blame, you know, to Bob, he doesn't really take it, take it on so much because you're kind of like the UFO messiah. I mean, you're the person that, that really had hands on if you're telling the truth. So I think he's aware because, for example, I gave him a, a skateboard <laughs> that was airbrushed with a picture of him. I thought it was hilarious because it was David Bowie, Nikola Tesla, and this rock star guy named Bob Lazard. He was laughing. He couldn't believe that somebody went out of their way. And another way to put it, I asked him to, to sign his autograph on some of the posters I made for the short film on Bob, just releasing a few extra minutes to the public because I just wanted the public to have a few minutes. This was a few years ago. And he said to me, he goes, are, are you sure I, I need, should sign these? I'm going to mess up the art. Are you sure people, people want the art, right? And I'm like, no, Bob, they actually want your signature, man. You know, you could write it on an envelope. So it's like he's kind of um, unaware, I think, to a high degree of just how much he's influenced the younger generation. And really what I like to say is weaponize people's curiosity because his story did that for me. True or not, at the time I was thinking about it. It really Im- impacted the way I thought about it, probably like you. So that that's Bob. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't really let it get to him either way. He just wants to make sure now, and this is why he's doing this with me. He I want wants one, to make sure now. I want that, one of those posters. You, um, <laughs> I don't even. What's have up one. with that? What's up with that? Yeah, I, I knew even, I knew that was coming. I don't, I don't even have one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but um, you know what's what's funny is, but yeah, it's an amazing poster, man. We got to get a black market for those. And get, yeah. I'm telling you. Uh, but really, why I think Bob has decided to allow me to to do this documentary and literally opened up every aspect of his life. Like, what phone number do you want? Here's my phone. You know, what, anything you want, anybody you want to talk to. Now, why is he doing that? And what I've come to understand, and we talk about this, and you will see this in the film, is that. It is more that people have inserted lies. They have inserted uh, fantasy in places where he tried to be very specific. And I think the weight of that has just become to a point where we have to, as he said in the quotes I recently released, pull it up by the roots. We need to make sure that his story is exactly as he said it and people can't any longer insert their fabrications. And he does say, this is it, this documentary, what you see you know, after this, or, you know, it's not true. This is going to be true. This is it. Don't let people twist it. And he only put one parameter on me 
for the whole film. He doesn't want anything, just one thing. Do not fabricate anything. And so I won't. Jeremy, I wanted to ask you this. One of uh, the interesting aspects about Lazar that that doesn't get talked about, and it and it should, is that when he left, uh, you know, Vegas, went to Michigan, started his company, that his company deals with uh, some pretty heavy materials, no pun intended, some of it being nuclear. But he's got government contracts. He's got uh, contracts with uh, uh, large corporations and supplying them uh, with uh, different chemicals and chemistry and, and, and materials and, and so forth. But if he was fraudulent in what he had said uh, about Area 51 or misrepresented himself with the government or uh, his employment or anything else, he wouldn't get any government contracts. I don't think, I think they, they would take the opposite approach to him. But he's dealing with some pretty sensitive materials now. And doesn't that say something about his character? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really fascinating when people attack the Lazar case. They say things like it's pseudoscience, and then they go into, you know, he's a con man. They make these big kind of bold statements. So I, I like to really look at it a, a little bit differently, which is, you know, first of all, I'm very much going into right now, is this pseudoscience? I mean, I'm speaking with the, the head of physics at three different universities right now to talk specifically about the possibility of stabilized element 115 with the right number of isotopes as, you know, this is something I'm going to speak about in my film. Uh, Bob is an incredible scientist. He has actually helped me and my understanding of science more than, than anybody in my life. Uh, he does have government contracts. I was, in fact, able to hear a, a lot of his daily life dealing with clients when I was at one time filming at his, uh, at his business. So, yeah, I think it's pretty ridiculous that people throw out these bold statements and then just simply don't back them up. They've got more conspiracy theories about Bob than anybody. Uh, Bob is an interesting character. You know, jet cars, explosives and flying saucers. It doesn't get much cooler than that. Uh, he's definitely lived a, a wild life and, and he remains the singular most famous and controversial name in, in, in the world of UFOs. Um, he's the reason you know about Area 51. That's because Bob came forward through George Knapp in 1989. That is what put Area 51 on the map. It was never had this type of popularity before. And for 30 years, he's been telling you, unwavering, his incredible story. His, his, his wife believes him. His mom believes him. And the closer you get to his inner circle, the more you will probably believe him. Uh, so, yeah, he's an amazing dude. He has really cool – I mean some of his contracts are just really interesting, like uh, painting ants with radioisotopes so they can be you know, detected without killing them, uh, ball bearings in hovercraft, making sure to create a magnetic system so it dispels sand instead of having to like re-purpose you know, them all the time because they're getting all chewed up when they're coming on shore with the sand. He's got some pretty cool project he gets to work on as well as just running his little United Nuclear Shop out of Michigan. So in my experience, Bob is a scientist, and in fact, I personally have confirmed a lot of that. And you will be seeing footage in the film that I'll be putting out that people have speculated about. Uh, I've got proof positive on some of it. So yeah. Now, uh, when you started to compile, I mean, you know, when you're getting ready to sit down with Bob Lazar, the questions and, and the list gets really long, fun, and interesting. 
for you, uh, what was the what was the uh, the first question, the most important one that you wanted to ask of him? You know, Bob hates it when I ask him, like, you know, what's the biggest or what's the most important? You know, he's so logical. He he tries not. And so I find the question so difficult to answer. You know, the most important question, I, I, I think first and foremost, I wanted to understand the science, the science of what he says he was exposed to, the science that is being held back from the general scientific community and public specifically about the nature of gravity being a wave and that there are commonly known in in these specific groups that there are two types of gravity that that are utilized there's gravity a and gravity b very simply how it was put gravity a being similar to the strong nuclear force you know that holds an atom together and that's why element 115 allegedly had this very unique property of extending that gravity a wave like the strong nuclear force outside of the mass of the atom itself which can then be you know sampled and amplified i wanted to know about the science i wanted to know how it worked and what's being held back from the 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 common scientific understanding so that's really where i started to begin is the implications of what he was saying. You know, did he walk in a saucer? Did he work at S4? Did he go to uh, MIT? Did he go, did he work at Los Alamos? All of that is interesting. But let's just get down to the brass tacks of it. Is any of this outside of a possibility? Or is it with inside possibility? The science itself. Mm-hmm. So that's what I went after first. And the answer was what? If you could summarize. The, the answer is that I'm still working with physicists and people right now to try to translate and understand how indeed this could work. I have found along the way that there are people who won't even answer my, my, my inquiry. You know, I go into these physics forums and try to get people to talk to me about this. And I had this Russian physicist, and he says, look, if this has anything to do with with UFOs or anything like that, I will not talk to you. I mm-hmm. will not talk about it. And, you know, I, I found that really sad because the potentiality – look, we know UFOs exist. We know one thing about them scientifically, which is that they represent a huge amount of energy in a small amount of space. That we know thanks to Dr. Jacques Vallée and all of his work. That is proven. Now – if we could harness any of that potential energy, if we could harness any of that technology, isn't that interesting to a physicist or a scientist? But you do get those people who are allergic to the concept of UFOs. But there are people who aren't, who right. will talk to me. Right, right. And that, that therein lies the problem. It, it goes with anything when you get into professional academia. You know, you bring up UFOs or Atlantis, right? <laughs> the, the door is shut. Um, I wanted to ask you about Element 115. Now, the Element 115 that he has always referenced, uh, 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 you know, going back to the early 90s, uh, that Element 115 well, the element 115 that is on the periodic charts now, the, you know, those numbers go in order. It would have been posted anyway on the periodic charts eventually. There's an element 175 that will eventually be there, or 176. Is the element 115 that should be called uh, Lazarium, by the way, we are petitioning for that. <laughs> um, uh, is that the same element 115 
that he was referencing back in uh, 1990. Yeah, I mean, the same in that it is, you know, element 115 is element 115, except there's a variety of different isotope combinations or isotopic combinations that can be utilized to, you know, harness that 115 into a form, you know, right now, there are two types of element 115 that were fabricated in laboratories. And both of those types of 115 had the isotopic combinations that only allowed it to have a very short half-life, you know, milliseconds, less than a second, right. milliseconds. So the, the Bob has always said, and he was kind of unimpressed. He said, yeah, that's very cool that they fabricated some, but they're just banging these single, you know, uh, atoms around it, 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 Essentially, you're going to get these unstable forms. He goes, but that, you know, I know there is a combination of isotopes that will stabilize it. And it's always been theorized that there's this island of stability and that there is a, you know, from one of the top physicists in America that I recently spoke with, I'm going to decline to say who it is today, but, you know, I, he said, no, we, we absolutely cannot rule out a stabilized version of that element 115. So in the short of it, to answer your question, yes, that is element 115. But the longer version is simply that the isotopic structure, so how, you know, the, the number of isotopes really, from how I understand it, will allow it to be stable or unstable for larger or smaller amounts of time. How long did he actually spend at Area 51? Well, you know, very little because he'd just get on the bus there. And then, you know, from there he'd go to S4. Well, S4, so, I mean, just right. uh, Groom Lake in general. Right, right. So, but I mean, that's what, why I said it that way is because that's one of these big arguments. Okay, well, Bob, if you worked at Area 51, you know, what is, you know, this, um, what is the cafeteria system like or something like that? Bob has never claimed to work at Area 51 proper. In fact, he said that's not where this work was being done. It was being done 15 or 17 miles south of Groom Lake at Papoose Lake at a site called S4. So the, the duration of his work, because it was at this time he was going through security clearance, although he already had done security clearances for Los Alamos, uh, there was an individual that was always named as the guy who, who did Bob's security clearance. And wouldn't it be interesting if after 30 years somebody found that guy? Well, yeah. I mean, so how, how much collective time altogether, lumped together, did he spend at S4 as an employee. Yeah, so that's so the duration of time compared to the number of times he was out there is only out there a handful of times. Right. But uh you know when he would go out there, he would, you know, be able to get a little bit more indoctrinated into the program and you know one time read briefings, another time did medical, another time got to work on the gravity amplifier, uh, one time went into the ship. And so the the collective time it wasn't a long duration of time. It was a series of months. It was just that it was so sporadic as he was going through the clearances that uh, he was being slowly indoctrinated. But he messed up. I mean, he messed up bad. Uh, you know the basic story. I mean, yeah, the reason we do. why. Yeah, we yeah. do. We do. We do. And yeah, he did mess up. That that was his fault. He ran his mouth, and that was the end of that. But um, the are we looking at? 80 hours? Are we talking about hundreds of hours at oh, S4? Gosh. Yeah, I, I, I don't know the exact number of hours, Jimmy. I mean, uh, I, I am specifically aware of a handful of times that we've gone through in detail, you know, trying to go back 30 years and remember each time what he did on each time. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the that, that, that best I can answer it. 
right now is a handful of times. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll give you some questions to ask him. How's that? Yeah, no, actually, I, I have been asking on social media for people to give me very specific questions that will lead to good answers so that that can be incorporated into the film. I am absolutely in that part of the process where these questions can be asked. Oh, do you want <laughs> go to extraordinarybeliefs.com. Don't send me the emails, everybody. Just go straight to Jeremy. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a lot I, of email. I, I welcome it because I want to know what people want to know to make right. sure I'm not missing something. And uh, I know the big questions people have that maybe are answerable, maybe they're not, about things like his education. You know, I'm doing my best to provide, but but you know, Bob is disinterested in improving his story to you anymore. Right. He says, I've done the best I can. What I want you to do is understand what I'm saying. And yeah, and now for for Bob, uh coming forward now uh with you, which we need, and I just cannot wait to see the film, and I'm fully jealous that you're able to pull this off and it's not me, but that's another story. Um <laughs> the uh uh, the story is so important. What do you think is different now than what hasn't already been said in the past? What are you able to not only pull out of him, but present to the public? Yeah, so that's really the, the meat of it, right? Mm -hmm. Not just repeating a story. Um, however, showing his recollection and what he's saying 30 years later, and you compare those with what George Knapp has done, uh, to see those pieces of footage together, that is innately powerful to look at something through the lens of 30 years. But there's a few things I want to be giving the viewer specifically. The first and foremost, my aim was to personalize Bob, was to people to get to understand who he is and his personality, because that describes and explains a lot. It's really hard to dismiss somebody if you humanize them. All I want people to do is end on the same question. At the end of the movie, whether you believe him or not, what if Bob Lazar is telling you the truth? Then what? So it would be really cool to get to that point. One way to do that is to show his everyday life, is to humanize him, is to show how he lives his life. One of his friends said to me, if you want to know the truth about UFOs, then you need to know and understand the truth about Bob Lazar as a person. Is Bob innately a liar or is he somebody that tells the truth to a fault, right? And so that is one aspect. The second aspect is historic footage, footage that nobody has ever seen that starts to amplify or impress upon you the, the reality of some of the things that he's been talking about. So imagine a huge box filled, unedited, just take it, filled with photographs from baby pictures to modern day and video where the person doesn't even know what, what's necessarily on it. And he's entrusting these to you. So within that is also an archive, an archive of surprises that I didn't expect that should shed light on the story in ways that were not shed before. Do you want me to get specific? Or? I do. I, my okay. question is, uh, uh, is there any, everybody's going to say, okay, so what about documentation? Uh, is there anything new, aside, you know, outside of his, his S4 ID card, if you know what I mean? Is there, a, right. do you have anything like that? What was in that box? So, you know, a, a federal judge once tried to get Bob's employment records. Do you remember that situation? I do, I do, I do, yes. Yeah. 
And if you if you listen to that judge, you can find that obscurely online. He says, well, it just this is the weirdest case ever. It seems to be impossible to get the records, you know, from the the, the, the military base of your employment. Yet they were told you don't have a need to know. They didn't say Bob Lazar never worked, that you don't have a need to know. They even had a congressman or a senator congressman that that wrote to try to get those records. So that is a very tricky one when you're dealing with Bob Lazar is you have the government on one hand, they're, they're not claiming that he didn't work there, but they're not giving you the goods. So I'm going to leave it at that at, at this point. But what was in the box, Jeremy? I want to know what was in the well, every, box. So, so everything from <laughs> photographs going back, going back to to baby photos, right, right, right. Uh, all the way up through uh, tapes that just have, I mean, everything under the sun. Even some of his laboratory experiments. For example, wouldn't it be interesting after all these years? When people say, oh, you know, he never worked at the Maison facility, you know, because remember, George Knapp tried to get to the bottom of it. First, they said he did. Then they said he didn't. And then even Kurt Meyer said that he never worked for them. Then they found the phone book and they go, oh, golly gee, I guess he did work here. Well, then I found Dr. Krangle and Dr. Krangle was in security briefings at Los Alamos with Bob Lazar. I get phone calls from people that I can never really report on. But the guy that digitized his medical records because of HIPAA laws, I can't have them. But I, I verified he worked there at that time. I verified everything about this guy. And in fact, he did digitize Bob's medical records. So in that box, you know, is also a bunch of um, footage. And that footage, I think, is very revealing about, wow. you know, places that he worked. Mm. OK, so this will be in the film. I, I surely hope so. I have two hours you know, basically to tell this story in, I guess, in the first part. I mean, however I tell it. But yeah, I hope to give you meat. I hope to give you things. I know I'm going to give you things you have never seen before that, that definitely invigorate the the debate. Now, with the with the Lazar missing years that he's been in Michigan, you know, and, and away from the UFO community and, and living his life. Was the government in contact with him? Does he have any men in black stories uh, in those missing years? Uh, uh, what was going on at, at that time? Mm. Well, I'm going to be a little careful about this because um, I'm reflecting on something here, which is that you asked me what was the first thing I asked him. And actually, I, I do remember it was not it was about the science. But the first time I ever had Bob go, Bob went on camera with me. I started grilling him on the 115 and I, I might put this footage might go out at some point. And he says, look, this is the most sensitive part of the story, period. Right. And um, I, I think that I'm sorry, I lost your question. I just got so wrapped up. Were, in that were there, has he had government contact uh, in the right. missing years? So so I'll put it to you this way. What is publicly known? Well, he was living in New Mexico. He was raided uh, thoroughly by a number of agencies. Uh, conveniently at that time, and I know you recently had a call from him, uh, who was on patrol, but Rick Doty, I thought that was really interesting, was actually at the house when, when the raid was going on. Although from Rick's perspective, he's like, look, man, I, people read too much into that. I was, you know, patrol. I was normal patrol. There were other agencies doing that raid. So 
As Coincidence? As, uh, I think not. I, I don't know. I, t- I tend to think it was because he was a patrol officer at the time. I mean, it was uh, something that wouldn't be outside of the scope for him to be there. You know, there's always su- suspicion, you know, around Doty because he had a job before and his job was to, you know, was counterintelligence and it involved the UFO world. So mm-hmm. he's always going to be that bad guy to, 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 to people. My point is more this ha- really, let's separate that. That has nothing to do with this. To answer your question. So that happened, and that was traumatic. That was traumatic for his family and that sort of thing. Um, there is a part to the story I'm not telling yet. I think that there might have been mention about it publicly at some point. Um, it has been very strange, this whole experience. You know, I imagined through 30 years, especially if he wasn't telling the truth, that there would be no interest and there would be no problems. That indeed has not been the case. Well, you know, and I, I was just going to mention this, and this just posted up in Twitter um, uh, from Eddie. Eddie says, what I don't understand is why the government didn't heart attack or car crash Lazar if he was, you know, in on all of these major secrets. Right. My answer to that is, if anything like that would have happened, that means everything he was saying was true. So that there's, that, there's yeah. just no way they could do that to him. Well, you know... You want to make him a martyr? Do that, and then (laughs) you've got bigger questions to answer, and it's not about the death of Bob Lazar. Yeah, it's it's a curious thing, and you know, it's really uncomfortable to just put it like that about you know somebody when you know them. Like we're talking about a human being here with families, an animal, and you know, mom, and you know, wife, and you know, the 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 harm put to somebody like that would that's unimaginably terrible. Uh, he did have a very scary time back in 1989. Indeed, that's why and how George Knapp convinced him to go public was to protect himself definitively. And at that time, Bob was terrified. The people in his life were terrified. They all witnessed it. Two of the people tasked with tailing uh, George Knapp and the others actually found him later. And he actually got confirmation from them. Hey, you know, you weren't you weren't just paranoid. We were tasked with following you. We don't know exactly what it was for or this or that. But that was real. That happened. And a number of sources of George's that came forward after the Lazar story, six of them in particular, one by one, were threatened not to talk to George. That is fact. That happened. So Bob's story, it did ring you know, the, 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 the sound or the impact of the story, it, it, it was just emanating through all of these high security places. I interviewed one individual who worked at, uh, area 52 Tonopah test range, right? And just for saying, Hey, you should listen to this guy on the news tonight. He got pulled aside and questioned at length about his association with Lazar. And did he know where Lazar was? And this was back in 1989 when, Lazar was really worried when he wrestled with George Knapp. The moment George was going to put that tape and air his face for the first time in the public, Bob got cold feet. But but George won a little wrestling match in the in the studio in the news studio right before it went public. Uh, the those famous uh, videos of of Lazar going out the the first couple of nights, right, taking everybody out to uh, show him the the test flights. Uh, does over the years, you know, during, I keep referring to the dark period, you know, while, while he was away until now, uh, did he continue his interest in, in UFOs? Did he go and sky watch? Did he look to the skies? You know, did, did, or 
was he just disconnected from UFOs? No, he was disconnected from UFOs. Look, you remember Jim Goodall was a friend of Bob's, you know, aviation buff, famous aviation buff, was a friend of, you know, Bob's before Bob was Bob the UFO guy. And he recalls this story where he's like, Bob came to him and said, it was kind of laughing. He goes, man, I feel really bad for John Lear. And Jim was like, why do you feel bad for Lear? And he goes, because he's like this son and this famous family, the Lear family. And he believes in UFOs. Like Bob thought it was the most absurd thing in the world. In fact, he thought it was so absurd that as he's reading these briefings and as he sees that this flying saucer for the first time, it actually had a little like American flag sticker on it or something like that. Mm -hmm. He goes, oh, see, that's people you know, thought it was UFOs. What idiots? You know, it, it was just us. It was ours. And that was, yeah. yeah, that was his impression. So that's that's the way Bob thinks. So, no, he's not ever been in i guess once you worked on one you know it's like who cares if you see one in the sky <laughs> it's pretty funny let's let's shift over to skinwalker such an interesting place about four years ago uh maybe a little longer steve Marillo, you know steve steve Marillo and alex mistretta uh go up to skinwalker uh to camp out uh at the fence at the gate and you know run some cameras and binoculars and whatnot and they called in and we did some live reporting from skinwalker on the air it was really fun but that wasn't what was most telling for me um they went down to the convenience store that's a couple of miles uh, down the road you, you probably know the one that's there it's the closest one to skinwalker where they get all of their provisions and they get the kid that is working there to come on the show right <laughs> they literally hand him the phone and this is what he said. He said, man, everybody up here has got a skinwalker story. My parents, anybody that you talk to around here, we've all got a skinwalker story. And I said, well, what's, he said, look, man, uh, the dogs, the dogs that, that float around, the black dogs with the red eyes and they don't have legs and, and they're, I was like, what? He said, yeah, man, and we've all got stories like that about Skinwalker. It is just a crazy place. There's stuff in the sky, there's stuff on the ground, and it's everywhere. What is going on up at Skinwalker, Jeremy? Yeah, that's the that's the million-dollar question. And, in fact, indeed, it is true that it's it's hard to find somebody in the Uinta Basin, anywhere surrounding the ranch, that doesn't have extreme collisions with the totally bizarre and perplexing and sometimes wholly terrifying uh, displays of, of the phenomenon. Let, let's just back up one second because this is very important to make clear tonight. I am going to be putting out a film on Skinwalker Ranch. This is a very informed film. In fact, you're going to learn about how these uh, releases, how they in, indeed are related highly to Skinwalker Ranch, the 22 million that, that Harry Reid, you know, spearheaded. What role does Skinwalker Ranch play in all of that? A much bigger role. There actually might be more of a sleight of hand going on than, than we've even talked about. How so? That, that that funding, that 22 million could wholly have been for Skinwalker Ranch. Wholly. So it'll be interesting to see in these, uh, in this film that is well informed that I'll be putting out that relies on new footage and interviews that I've been doing again pretty silently for a couple years, but also going back to actual on-site investigation from the time when NIDS was involved through Robert Bigelow at the ranch. Now we do know that it was taken 
and turned into a DIA program called BASS. I think people know that. That's um, that, that was an organization, Bigelow uh, Aerospace Advanced. Uh, oh man, now I'm botching it. But uh, yeah, it was it was a program that was a DIA run program, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. That's what it was. Right. So let's just back up one second for those people that don't know. Let's make it really clear. In 1998, real estate mogul, self-made billionaire, Robert Bigelow of Bigelow Aerospace, he purchased this 480 acres of land in northeastern Utah. He used it as a living laboratory to study UFOs, the phenomenon. He had personal interest. Historically, that location has been an area inundated with you know these bizarre events going back generations. Uh, it's within the culture there. Uh, you know, all through generations, he employed Bigelow, a, a crack team of PhD and, you know, level scientists such as Colin Kelleher, co-author of the book, but with George Knapp, Hunt for the Skinwalker. And they did long-term investigation. You know, if the, the family that was being terrorized at the ranch couldn't get answers through traditional means, maybe science could answer for them. That was the idea. That program eventually led to the government interest in wanting to know if what was being displayed in that rural area of Utah was indeed otherworldly. And that's where it became, you know, is this a national security threat? That story can now be told because of the recent releases by the Department of Defense and the New York Times, the admissions that in fact there's an ongoing UFO investigation by our government has deep-rooted connections to Skinwalker Ranch. And I'm going to be telling that story now, soon. That movie's coming out. So... You're suggesting I'm saying you're you're saying that there is an alien off world ET UFO connection to Skinwalker Ranch that the government is aware of uh, and and invested into. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> because that's what it sounded like. Okay, okay. What, what, yeah, what I am saying is that there is a historic pattern of these displays being presented, concentrated in that area. The ranch was isolated as a, as a 480 acre spot to study the, the phenomenon which is occurring in the entire Uinta Basin. And yes, I am specifically saying that the Defense Intelligence Agency partnered with Robert Bigelow and they called it BASS. And that was to study the threat, the potential threat of of the phenomenon that is factually what i am saying now what did what did bass find out you know if we go back to the bigelow 60 minutes uh interview which uh was pretty telling there was a lot of stuff in there um is what the statements made by bigelow in the 60 minutes interview specifically i know aliens are here is that based on skinwalker and bass or something else well, I would say that's part of his cumulative knowledge. Remember, he runs in high circles. He has a lot of military friends. He is, you know, the go-to guy for our government when it comes to studying the phenomenon. Um, all UFO reports, you know, thanks to people like John Alexander, were, were funneled towards Bigelow's place. So he is a very informed individual, put more money into this as any individual on the planet to study the phenomenon. So, yeah, I would say that his statements were based upon, among other things. But, yeah, of course, the, the Bass, you know, report that he was, you know, in control of, as well as the NIDS reports prior to Bass. I mean, Bass itself, I think, had 45 or 50 people and a, and a rapid response team. Uh, I know that the first 10 months 
were, were, were put together in a 490 page briefing. If I got that right, there are about 25 reports. So yeah, I'd say he's a very informed individual when it comes to the phenomenon and the government's interest, which is concrete and ongoing. Now, there were reports that there was military security uh, during this time at Skinwalker. Well, there was a lot of security at all times because you have knucklehead idiots going out there thinking if they just top the fence, they're going to see a shapeshifter. I mean, it's a problem. It is private land and it is on a sovereign nation. So the, the whole area that you went to Basin is, you know, you can't just go and camp there. I was allowed to camp there, Bottle Hollow, right by Skinwalker Ranch, um, you know, because the, the, the tribal nation, the tribal elders who govern that area george has established an incredible relationship and they have been very forthcoming and we're very grateful for that relationship because we were the first people ever allowed to take footage and bring it off of of the sovereign nation off the Ute tribe land so yeah in this film you'll be seeing historic footage that's very compelling i got to you know raiders of the lost ark over at george's i mean i pushed them for it and uh, he wanted to do a documentary about this originally, but it was decided it was not a good idea for him to do that documentary because of all the trespassing and problems were causing for the scientific study of the phenomenon. But I think now it's in new ownership and new hands, and I think very capable hands. And I think the studies will continue. And I think at this time, it's a very special window of opportunity to get this story out, particularly because of how it relates to what we just witnessed in popular media. Yes, okay. So, directly, did did Bigelow make contact with E.T.? I have no idea. Did the reference of these alloys at, uh, which I think everybody's assuming it's a Bigelow warehouse, an owned warehouse in Las Vegas, where these alloys uh, uh, are at right now, um, did Bigelow attain those uh materials himself i don't believe so no so they came from why do you not believe so uh because that's incongruent with what i know (laughs) no no you can answer you can answer i mean yeah no i mean i all i can say is that uh, i don't know Uh, i i believe that to be completely uh incorrect that that biglow somehow are you asking did he get those from the ranch the alloys being held that's what i think a lot of uh, people are assuming right now it's a it's a safe it's a safe assumption you know okay i understand the assumption i i do not believe that to be true okay um, so you don't, you, you don't have footage of a craft at Skinwalker. Um, well, that's a tricky one that, you know, that if you remember the entire problem with the NIDS investigation right. via the book is that the original man who, who was living there and, you know, kind of let NIDS on and sold the ranch said, you need to stalk this like an intelligent animal. It makes mistakes, but you need to be quiet. You need to be silent. Coming in here with a bunch of technology is probably the wrong way. And indeed, the, the head of the program, Dr. Colin Kelleher, uh, after a while agreed with that, that the phenomenon would decrease as the observation increased, as if it didn't like being watched. However, there have been a lot of things captured that are anomalous on film in the areas. But I'll give you a concrete example of something that will be discovered more in the film. They, at the time, had a very high 
end version of night vision back in the early days of, of night vision. It, I think it is public knowledge that one of the scientists on the ranch did see, it's written in the book, something coming out of what looked like an orange glowing tunnel, as if this tunnel of light kind of opened up in this creature, dark, uh, you know, almost a void of light through night vision. If you have ever used night vision, something that has zero light, mm-hmm. right? So no face or whatever, crawled out of this, you know, hole, allegedly one of the scientists saw this and really freaked out. When they tried to capture that scenario on film, without without night vision, all you saw was an amber glow. So you can get a cool picture of an amber glow, but that doesn't show you what was experienced by the people there. So there is physical evidence, and I will be trying to focus on that in my film. And it is a very informed uh, narrative that I'll that I'll be sharing with people about the physical evidence. But that was always the problem. At Skinwalker Ranch. What do you think uh, ultimately is happening at Skinwalker? Is it interdimensional? Is it off-world? Is it is it just spirits? Is it us? What do you yeah, think so is that, going on? That, that's way above my pay grade to, to discern. However, there it, 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 there were people within the Defense Intelligence Agency that attempted, some say successfully, to shut down the program because they believed what they were seeing was demonic. Right. So if you look at Right. So, but that is very real. There's a contingency within the Defense Intelligence Agency which look, you know, takes that very seriously. Um, back to your point, like, do you have a video of a craft? You know, my films are more, you know, about the the individuals than it is uh, about like, you know, look at this proof evidence. But if something fell into my lap, sure, I was shown very interestingly. I had a conversation with one of the tribal police officers. This was the most chilling moment for me of all my times going to the ranch or whatever. This was the most chilling. So this this guy, I'm talking with him, he's I'm not gonna say specifically his position because I'll give him away, but he's an individual who is a well-known law enforcement person, tribal law enforcement person, and he kind of took me aside after I earned his trust a little bit. And he says, I want to show you something. And he took me into his little command center, opens his phone, and shows me one of the most astonishing videos of a UFO crossing over the area of the ranch, although it's not right over the ranch, plain as day, on his phone, it was incredible. And I, I said, you know, can I have that? And he, he goes, nope, not not now, not today. And, and then he, he turned to me and he says, look, I've seen people like you. I've seen this happen. You are hunting something. It knows you are hunting it. It will harm you given the chance. And he's telling me this not to like freak me out or something like this. There was like true concern. And as he's telling me this, he looks at his his partner, uh, the other officer, and I can tell, I can see between them that they, they're talking about something specific. And, and then I get the story. And the other officer, they both decline to go on camera. They do not want public exposure. What this other officer saw and how it impacted his family, how it attached to his life and the people he loved and how it terrorized him for a time, that's what he was talking about. That was the most chilling. Everybody out there has experiences and they've seen these things. Let it be beings, craft, just incredible. I mean, mile-wide craft going into a mountain. Just astonishing witness testimony from people who don't want exposure. What what did you see in the video? And was it daylight or a nighttime shot? 
it was it was more towards evening, you know, kind of sunsetish, but it was just a glowing, large, small moving like on a cell phone. There's no CG effect. There's no ability for somebody to to create this. It was a true unidentified uh, floating object of uh, high luminosity. It was big and it was pretty astounding. You know, it wasn't just a tiny little dot in the sky. I wish I had the video. What was the altitude? I would say over the you know, two houses high over the house. So it was pretty darned low. I'd say within, oh, I don't know, uh, 150 feet. That's crazy. Yeah, totally okay. crazy. How long, um, how long was the video in duration? Uh, I watched it for probably about 30 seconds. He was just showing me because I had asked him spe- a specific question about something that he had seen on a regular basis. And he said, I caught it one time on film. Okay. So that was my next question. You just answered it. I'll ask anyway. So it was his footage. He witnessed this. He shot it himself. Oh yeah. He didn't even know how to get it off his phone. I mean, yeah, it was his footage. Yeah. And what, uh, did it look solid? You know, you, you, you know, you know, yeah. you know what to do. Uh, yeah. With this. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was absolutely real something high energy, just not light. Plasma. I mean, not a light object, not a plasma object. You're saying this was a physical craft, right? It, it, it appeared, I mean, I'm looking at a cell phone video, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was compelling enough where I was like, can I have that? I mean, that's pretty incredible. That's it. You know, if you put it on the scope of everything that's out there, it's probably one of the best that I've seen. However, I hope that more will be coming out. <laughs> Did you? Okay. Now, uh, do you have this footage now? No, he wouldn't give it to me, man. Oh, man. Why don't you I and I go up there? I'll, I'll take I, a know, briefcase I, full you know, of money. I'm earning these guys' trust. I mean, I can't just uh, – but he didn't say he didn't say I could never have it. He just <laughs> basically told me, nope, not today. Uh, and, and I do think it is interesting, but it is just a drop in the bucket. Remember, this area was studied scientifically for a, a long time. The mutilations are something that I think are the most interesting because this is concrete, physical, hardcore evidence of intervention with cattle in ways that seem to uh, completely go against anything that we can imagine how it could be done. Not a single drop of blood, uh, just absolutely bizarre. And that I do have footage. Uh, if you hunt the skinwalker.com, you go to that website I mean, it's the opening splash page is from the NIDS investigations, that footage. Yeah. And so you've actually seen, uh, uh, a cattle, uh, mutilation. Uh, yeah. I mean, not, not in the flesh. Yeah. Through the reports. And oh, through okay. The... I thought you, uh, oof, I, no, I don't know man, how you'd I'd handle that. I'd probably go running. Everybody yeah. tells me still got time to get scared. I just, you know, I feel joy over there. I don't feel any negative feeling in that area you know? now now have you uh i just referred uh to you directly where you know i had this eyewitness uh you know come on the show and and talk about these these floating you know red-eyed uh demon dog things right that that everybody up there yeah. seems to see um what do you think about those kinds of reports because this whole uh, demon side of it, right? This evil side of it is something that prevails out there with uh, the eyewitnesses and the community. Um, uh, what do you think about that side of the reports? Look, man, uh, these people take it very seriously who live, you know, in the area. So some of the things that I found very interesting about the police force out there, the tribal police force, 
they have to take every call seriously because they've seen the impacts if they don't. So this is common understanding that there is something else. Now, the pressing question, and this is one of the more dramatic parts, I think, in my film as it's being put together, there's a central question. When you see people that you love and they have an experience, they see a a craft or a ship and it shines a light, beams it down on them. And let's say they get a really intense radiation burn and then get a cancer and die within a year. And then you see other people who've had similar experiences and are sick from this type of thing. And then if you encounter some sort of craft that beams a light on you and you're sitting there thinking, is this, is this how I'm going down? Right. It's very emotional and people want answers. They want to know too, is this real? Is this paranormal? Is this UFO or is this the government? That is a central question uh, of this film. Now, I know that uh, you just stated that, you know, you're you're interviewing people and you're capturing that side of it. But did you experience anything supernatural? Me personally, I'm way more skeptical when I'm in that area because you kind of expect, you know, you're hoping to expect to see something. I can't say that I've seen anything that is uh, truly unexplainable, you know, on my trips up there. Uh that's about as far as I can go, you know. Okay. Um, the thing is this. Also, you live in Pioneer Town, Joshua Tree, one of the most magical places in the country. You have Sedona. You have uh, East Eddy Ranch, right? You have these different areas. Uh, do you think that Skinwalker, what is going on there, is is special to Skinwalker, or is this also... Uh, uh, what is going on at other locations around the country? There are other locations that have been identified both by the DIA and by the NIDS group. There are other locations of high activity. You know, they say places where the world is thin. How else can you say it? Uh, Skinwalker Ranch is just a living laboratory in a hot spot that extends way far beyond the border of the ranch. You know, the ranch has nothing to do with it other than it's a place where it can be studied. Yes, there are other locations uh, like this on our earth that are known both in private circles and in military circles. I can say that with confidence. Uh, I want to see it. Uh, when is the when is uh, the film going to be released? Oh, my God. I want to see it, too, man. I am jamming two films in 2018. I don't know what I've done to myself, but, <laughs> uh, you know, this will be a summer release. Summer release, for sure. You know, I've heard this from you before, Jeremy. No, no. Actually, I've never said something's coming out when I didn't know when. Never. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to make you uh, go listen to some other shows of mine. I promise you, man. I have have made sure. But this will be a a summer release. Uh, I am going to turn in the film, you know, probably two months prior to that. But it is uh, set for summer release, and there will be actually a big uh, press release coming out pretty soon in the trade mags about these two films and my signing for two. Okay. Can I keep you for another 10 minutes of overtime? Absolutely. Okay, we're going to do that, uh, and we're going to come back and want to talk about some of the other projects and get a follow-up on. Uh, Lazar, uh, when can we expect to see this? That will be at the end of 2018. I'm going to squeeze every last drop of time I can before releasing it in 2018 because it is a monumental task to go back 30-plus years in someone's life and provide a two-hour film. So I will do that. It will be in 2018, but it will be the end 
of 2018. Yeah, you know, uh, there's something else that uh, that is strange. Uh, TTSA is also doing Lazar's biography, the book. Yeah, that that's not so strange. That you know, we that's something very talked about. Uh, I mean, Bob, based, they wanted to just you know write the basic story that you've heard in you know Bob's first person narrative. Right. And it's it's exactly the story as you know. That way, it'll be in print, and Bob was happy to know that it will be done that way. Um, that's something that wasn't a hard sell, you know, for him. No, no. no. What I mean is, uh, what's going to come out first? Lazar's oh, oh, book? Oh, I don't the... know. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I think it'd be complimentary and, um, I don't know. I don't know when they're going to do that. Yeah. Okay. So T- TTSA isn't waiting for you to release first. No, there's no coordination. I, I think they're just very independent. You know, Bob's story in written form, it's just like grabbing everything, you know, off the internet and putting it basically into a narrative, straightforward first person. Um, I don't think, uh, there's going to be anything, uh, new out of that, but it's just telling the story. Right, right. That's my question. See, you answer my questions before I, an- I ask them and that's not cool. So let's, let's try, let's try this again. <laughs> uh, in, 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 in about two minutes, we got to hit a break. Sure. Um, is there anything that is going to upend uh, in the Lazar book that would be presented in the film? No. You feel good about that? I'm yeah, positive. I want the good stuff to be in the in, in the film. Well, I just want Bob's story to be told uh, clearly and accurately and with a discerning eye so people can make their own judgment. And I think film is the right medium to do that. Documentary is the only way instead of glorifying it in some fictional account at this time. That's See, you answered my question before I asked it. That's why you're Jeremy (laughs) Corbell. Nanoman, one 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 of the cool things that you have ever done. And and jumping in, I'll never forget those scenes with uh, uh, the analyst, the scientist going, you know, holy crap, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so what's up with Nanoman? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So he's been working a lot right now out of Arizona because his name is Chris Cooper. He's been weaving the carbon nanotube thread that I've probably shown in some of my films. Uh, when you're talking about Nanoman, we're talking about three different projects with him. I was first turned on to speak with him about a propulsion device that he right. was working on by a, a Navy uh, contact. And this information was sent to me. You should study what this guy's doing. It's really cutting, bleeding edge. So I went to his place in his underground laboratory and basically started filming the development of the space drive, which you know he thought was a photonic hyperspace propulsion system, really kind of wild. And it was some success and failures, but really cool. He didn't, didn't to this point, figure out exactly how it's creating thrust, but it is. Uh, as, as far as we can t- tell, we put it on a torsion pendulum, and basically he's been working on that. We're also talking about his uh, work into the cold fusion process, which we now know is a you know process that is get, gaining more ground these days. And I worked with some of the godfathers of cold fusion, people that worked at Lawrence Livermore Lab, uh, filmed with a whole bunch of people. The world has not seen that footage yet. They just saw what we think might be the first light bulb ever lit up by this uh, process. So that was neat. Released that to the public. And then also the other topic with Chris Cooper was what I found later, his inspiration for these things in nanotechnology was a material that he didn't understand how it was fabricated and neither did the technicians at NASA Ames in the nanotechnology department. So he's an interesting guy. 
He's working on spinning carbon nanotube thread like a maniac right now. We will be filming again soon. The the first time when he when he held up the vial. Yeah. Right. Um, and you looked I, I think I might have asked you this before. Um, what did you did you see anything? No, it looked it looked like water, man. It did. So, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm there. And he corrected me quickly and goes, no, it's ethanol. You know, like, okay. So he basically gave me this vial after we'd been going through all this normal terrestrial stuff, you know, with uh, propulsion and said, well, this is something of interest that I had analyzed 10 years ago. And it has, you know, nanoparticulates in uniform manner that appear to me, you know, to be, for lack of a better term, a term from science fiction, uh, you know, gra- um utility fog, you know, which is this science fiction idea of a bunch of machines that work towards a greater whole with the super intelligence. And I was like, yeah, that's crazy, man. I was like, well, if I could have that, I'd just take it and get it analyzed. And he's like, oh, here you go. Right. And he gave it to me. And I was like, what? And I was like, well, what? I don't know any, how, where, where do I do this? And he's like, well, I can get you into NASA. I'm like, what? And he did a full free day on the scope with a technician to help me look for, you know, the needle in the haystack. And there was lots of this stuff in it. It, it it was an incredible part of the documentary. Were you able to, uh, to follow up on that and see any man? What was the cartoon with uh, the construction workers on Saturday mornings? Oh yes, what was that? That was great. Uh, yeah, well that's Fraggle what's... Rock. Fraggle Rock. Yes, right? yes, yeah. yeah. Fraggle Rock. Was that? Uh, did you catch any Fraggles? No, I wish there was some like alien, uh, you know, serial number on these parts. No, it it remains a mystery. All I know is that we at this time cannot, uh, you know, perforate the materials in these like, you know, nanometers and create these objects that are uniform. And, you know, that's something apparently we don't quite have the ability to do without atomic printing or something like that. The next step would be to take it to NIST. And to be able to, it's the National Institute of Science and Technology, and they have atomic milling. So being able to put it under the right machines and kind of core through this outer sheath mm-hmm. that seems to protect these inner layers. And up until now, I have not been able to, to you know, have the ability to do that. But it's looking very promising now, actually, that I'm going to be able to take this material, which is still in the vial, and have it further analyzed and find out if, like in Patient 17, if it's a Tonka truck or something from out of this world. You right. Know? And, and what, is the, uh, what is the solution that it's suspended in? Uh, ethanol. It is ethanol, so you can't drink it. I wouldn't try. Ah, if it was water, would you drink it? <laughs> you put, put these nanobots uh, in your body? Yeah, man. Uh, I don't know what it is. You know, I really don't. But I loved it. <laughs> how mystified everybody was in the nanotechnology department at NASA Ames. I mean, it is strange. And we, and it did come from, you know, a high activity site where there was a, a you know, an alleged UFO landing. So if all of that is true, that's interesting. What I'm most curious about is, is this material anomalous? It's just like the patient 17 object. I don't care where it's from. Right. Is it anomalous? Jimmy, this comes from Deuce Guy. Jimmy, please ask Jeremy if the fallout from Tom DeLonge and To The Stars initiative has reignited interest in his truth embargo documentary about the citizens hearing and how soon might we get to see it? Gosh, you know, my partner in the citizen hearing, Ruben Langdon, the unsung hero of the citizen hearing, we were talking about this the other week. Our job is to really continue to get 
the footage from the citizen hearing out to people, that documentary covering the citizen hearing doesn't seem as important to us as getting the testimony out to people. I, you know, I don't know if it's a fallout from, from, you know, DeLong's endeavor. Again, I, I stand strong that there's a lot that we have now to work with that we didn't before. There are some tough questions that need to be answered. And, and I do feel that we are going to get some of those answers if we keep asking the questions. So if, if that answers your, your question, I hope it does. Well, the Truth Embargo documentary, this is, I mean, the testimony, the, the hearing itself it's fascinating. I, I mean, I couldn't get enough of it when it when it first, but but that's one part of it. But for me, the behind the scenes, the truth embargo of the documentary is just as compelling as yeah. the hearing itself. I think you need to get that out there. Right. And we did tons and tons of interviews that, you know, in depth with, with people not even on location. Like the anonymous interview was something we got, we took for the documentary for that hearing because it was such a compelling story. So yeah, there's so much content there. It's just what are, what is the prime objective here for 2018 for me? I've got these great gifts of being able to do Skinwalker story and the Lazar story. I will do those and then I'll set my aim on the next one, whatever it is that is most important at the time. These two are timely. Now, we've been talking about patient 17 all night. We have uh, haven't gotten specific about it. First off, how is it doing on, on Netflix? Apparently, phenomenally well. I think Netflix is starved for really you know, good UFO-based content in general. So I think when see, people see the poster and they're like, oh, cool, that's probably about UFOs. So people are clicking away and it's doing really great. And so, you know, look, it's always mixed reviews. If people like your film or they don't like you film, your film, I kind of care less after I put it out. I did my best to give people the vision of what I saw and went through at that time. And um, apparently people are clicking on it. People are watching it. So that is awesome. I am so grateful. People dig it, right? There's so much more to come. Well, tell them, uh, tell them about Patient 17. What's it about? Well, I think they should go to Netflix. They should watch the film or iTunes or Amazon. You'll get a full understanding. But it, the very short version of it is Dr. Roger Lear alleged to be removing alien implants. And I was kind of calling BS at the beginning on it. And then I met Patient 17. Dr. Lear dies. And all of a sudden, my film is no longer you know, about Dr. Lear. It's about the patient and about what he's going through. And he's such a, a kind and n not the kind of person you'd expect to be going through th these experiences. And he wanted to know, too, does this object in his leg have anything to do with his personal abductive experiences, which he hadn't even told a lot of his family or, or church about or anybody? And so it was a real shock that the whole aim of the film changed as I was going through it. And at the end of the day, we know more now than we did at the beginning. And it's something. Now we have to verify those results three ways from Sunday. And at the and I don't want to give away the film, but that was very hard to do for a while. But I feel that I am on a good path now to getting more tests done to be able to answer that question. Now, specifically on what was removed from 17 or the other implants uh, that Lear was in possession of. And uh, where are those? 
Yeah, so I don't touch that with a 10-foot pole because I didn't see chain of custody. I don't know about right. those other things. I don't even call them implants. I'm not calling this one an implant. Right. It is a foreign body, an alloy, 36 different elements that was in a man's body. We did isotopic analysis, which basically shows you the, the composition, let's say, of zinc. You know, there's five different kinds, four you can measure for. And the zinc 64, by these tests was definitively non-terrestrial, meaning, you know, made outside of our solar system or farther, much farther. Now, unless that test is fabricated by a national laboratory or it's flawed in some way because they didn't triple wash it, although they did, and I pushed them on that, then we do have an anomalous result, kind of like Jacques Vallée has 15 samples that he's looking at right now with the same methods. So the idea is, can we get this object back and then can we do the proper testing to either replicate the science that we did before or to debunk it? That's the goal. I want to thank you again for coming on tonight. Uh, always a great conversation with you. You're going to be at Contact in the Desert along with uh, myself uh, June 1st through the 4th. Uh, what are you going to be speaking about this year? What are we going to see? Oh, you're actually, wait a minute, you're going to, you're going to uh, view a film too, right? I, I believe we're showing patient 17 so everybody can see it there. And I believe that they chose uh, for me to talk on my Lazar film at that time and kind of some of the details and to show footage that nobody's seen that will be incorporated into that film. So you're going to do that. We're going to actually uh, be able to see some of uh, your, your upcoming footage on Lazar. Oh, yeah. You'll see stuff that no one's ever seen before. Man, I can't wait for that, man. You know, and you know, the only way I'm going to be able to see it, I'm going to introduce you again this year and then stick around. <laughs> All right. That hey, was... look, man, I really look forward to it. And I appreciate, you know, everybody talking about this. I know we left a lot of stuff uncovered and this is just life. You know, we, the story is developing about humanity's relationship to these unknowns. And I, I hope that we get closer to the truth as, as the years go forward. And it surely seems like that we're going in that direction. Nobody does it better than you, Jeremy. Thank you so much, man. And don't stop rolling that rock uphill, my friend. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Have a great night.